Well, good morning, everyone. He is worthy. Yeah, we can do that. That works. My name is Eric Solomon, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. Specifically, I get the honor of serving here as the campus pastor at TVC. And I just got to say, I love what Maria said there near the end. That this, that she framed the work of of the church and of those who support or who the church supports, like through Puente, as representing Jesus, right? Being the hands and feet of Jesus, right? Being participating in God's work that's already happening in the lives of these students and their families and in the neighborhoods where God has placed us. This is why we serve others by supporting ministries like Puente and by participating in in days like Carefest. Not just because it feels nice to serve, but because in a very real way, we are joining God in his work, where he is working. Now, track with me here. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 8 says this, and we've got to go read all the way through the end so you get what I'm trying to say. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that... Here's what I'm trying to work towards. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This morning, we approach this rhythm in our worship of giving as a church family. We worship this morning not just by singing and praying and and reading scripture, but by giving. And, And not because we get some kind of special blessing from God when we do that, but because God has already been generous to us in Christ. By dying and being raised from the grave and offering us the gift of freedom from sin and and, and new life in him, we worship by giving because God wants us to reflect his generosity. God wants us to participate in his good work as cheerful givers. A, A few verses later in this section, Paul actually interrupts himself in praise to God. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so as we consider in this moment what we should give and how we should worship by giving, I want us to reflect on that indescribable gift that God has given us in Christ. To let that fuel our worship by giving. To participate, you can give it online or on your way out of the worship service. But, but again, what I'm trying to frame here is that we give not because we have to, but as a response of gratitude and generosity to who God is, what he has done, and how he continues to work through this church family. Amen? Now, before we pray together... I want to kind of expand even the welcome that Melissa did at the beginning of the service and say, I just want to welcome all of you who are new here for the first time, whether you're joining us here on campus or online, we are so grateful for you to be here. I know that not for everybody, that there's not, for some people, I'll say it this way, I know for some people, being in church can be a really difficult thing, that you might have your own experiences of church in the past that have hurt you. And so I want to say that we are grateful for and honored by the privilege that it is to be a space in which you would choose to walk in here, in in person, or even online. And and if you feel like, okay, I I still want to find out more about this, we would be honored to walk with you, to introduce you even further to the Jesus who really and truly loves you, the Jesus of the Bible. And so after the service, if you want to come talk to me or anybody that you've seen serving, we want to be a space that, that welcomes you with, the Bible says, the welcome of Christ, even if other spaces haven't been that for you. Okay? Now, as we approach the Bible together and read the words of that Jesus I was just talking about, I want to pray that we might be changed and affected by those words. So let's pray before we read Scripture. God of the brokenhearted, this morning, 
We come to you with the kind of praise that broken hands and struggling hearts bring. Sometimes those broken hands and struggling hearts bring praise as a whisper because we can be nervous that you are like those who have hurt us in the past. But sometimes those who have felt your love and, and, and seen your compassion come and praise at the top of our lungs because we are confident that there is no one like you and you are good and your mercy endures forever. Jesus of the scars, we come to you with our pain and our frustration this morning, with our hurt, our anxiety, our, 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 our tiredness, our fatigue, our worry. We come with the question that was on Peter's heart. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We come expectant this morning, expecting that you will breathe life into us once again by imprinting and impressing on our hearts the good news of your kingdom, the grace and mercy of the king, the compassion and patience of a God who wrapped himself in human flesh marked by love. We come expecting to be affected and changed by your gospel. Would you show us who you have made us to be? both individually and as your people. Show us what it means to be part of this beautiful community of your church this morning. And Lord, even this morning, we communicate our our gratitude for how you have shown not just us what that looks like, but the world what that looks like through the work of your missionaries. This morning, we thank you for the work that you have done in and through Mike and Peggy Lowe in Panama. Thank you for the gospel that they proclaimed as they served refugees, the gospel that they translated as they taught English, the gospel that was on full display as they renovated a school the gospel that they equipped these missionaries that were being sent from Latin America to other places. We thank you and we pray that you would give them much needed rest now that they're stateside, but Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom and clarity as they try to figure out what comes next. God of all who seek you in faith, as we approach your word this morning, may our faith mark us as those who are expecting to hear from you. We want to know what you have to say about your people, about the beauty of what it means to be a church that reflects both the diversity and unity in all of its mosaic and theological splendor. God who has revealed himself in a book, as we approach your book, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this morning would be accepted by you as a sacrifice of praise, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Joshua Barone, a a New York Times senior staff editor, tells the story of a December night in 2017 when 400 musicians gathered in Philadelphia to perform Symphony for a Broken Orchestra by David Lang. Their instruments, 400 broken trumpets and violins and cellos and clarinets from public schools all around the city. Broken trumpets that were held together by painter's tape. Violins that were missing some strings. A cello, one cello was even carried in, in, in a bunch of pieces. The symphony was meant to raise awareness and funds for the repair of these instruments. The, the, the piece that they had put together was to, to help actually repair them for the schools. And the piece began with the silence of many of these instruments. But as it progressed, they each started to find their own broken voices. Right? Some musicians had to wrestle with their instruments. One clarinetist could get only short spurts of sound at a time, and one French horn player actually lost his mouthpiece multiple times as he was playing. And yet together, the orchestra produced this rich harmony. Together, they created something beautiful. As the performance reached its final movement, each section started to bow out one by one until all that was left was the humble squeal of a broken clarinet. 
the beauty of this moment communicates a deeper reality when we consider the beautiful community called the church. Like symphony for a broken orchestra, the church is made up of of broken people that God is in the process of making whole. And he heals and restores, not by snapping his fingers, but by putting us together in, in beautiful community. And the music that he directs us to produce, the music that he is orchestrating among us, is the witness not of a unity alone, but of a beautiful community that is both truly united and truly diverse because of the God that we serve. A reality that is possible only because of the one who died and rose again and now stands at the center of this church, Jesus Christ himself. So for the next two weeks, we're actually going to be exploring the multi-ethnic heart of God for his people from Genesis to Revelation. And no, that does not mean we're going to be up here for three hours a Sunday as I preach. We're just going to be running really quickly. Now, we just celebrated the resurrection. Now, this Sunday after Easter, we not only celebrate the resurrection, but we're going to unpack the multi-ethnic effects of that resurrection among God's people. And this morning, we start where all good stories start. We start in the beginning. The text that we're going to call home base as we run through the larger storyline of the Bible is Genesis 1, 25 through 27 and 31. So I'd ask if you would turn or scroll in your Bibles to that section of the book of Genesis, and we'll dive into the beginnings of God's plan for his beautiful community. And like we always do, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word, whether you're here or online, as we read? Genesis 1.25 begins like this. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now, I want to frame this sermon series for us a little bit with some more clarity before we dive in. And I'll start here with what the sermon series is not. The sermon series is not a series that is culturally determined. The reason we're diving into multi-ethnicity is not because of some external pressure that has been exerted by the societal conversation on race. The reason we are diving in is because of an internal pressure exerted by God's word meant to shape not just our thinking, but our hearts with his. This sermon series is also not some uh, quick fix to force or church program to implement. Instead, it is a way of looking at the world and a way of life that God expects out of his people from beginning to end. On the other hand, this sermon series is what's called a biblical theology, where we actually trace the biblical storyline from beginning to end to see what God has to say about a particular topic, in this case, about the people he created, the people he is making for himself. This sermon series is also about God's expectation for his people, right? For his church. And also, to be honest, for the world as a whole. And lastly, this sermon series is about a much bigger and much longer and much more painful process than we'd like to admit. 
Right? This sermon series is not just, hey, we check the box and then everything's good. Which is why in both of the sermons that we're doing this Sunday and next, I want us to get a firm grip on the theological convictions that our value of multi-ethnicity is founded upon. Because when, not if the process proves difficult, but when the process proves difficult, we will falter, we'll stumble, we'll hesitate, and we might even quit if the reason we pursue multi-ethnicity is, on, is grounded in anything but God and who he is and who he says we are. So with all that said, I want to be clear that what I mean when I say that we are pursuing multi-ethnicity, I mean that we as a church body across all of our campuses want to reflect our immediate context. We want to reflect the neighborhoods in which we live, love, and serve. Not because we just want to look like our neighborhoods, but because God said that is what his church will look like at the end of time. Which means, at minimum, that we actually look like the people that God has placed in this particular context. But what God wants is much bigger than minimums. What God wants out of his people, what he expects and enables by forming this beautiful community called the church, is more than shallow or cosmetic diversity where looks are everything. It is the depth of true unity in diversity. And true diversity in unity. In other words, God is after the coming kingdom that I talked about that he actually describes in Revelation 7, 9 like this. He says, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That is the community that God is after building now. But now we're probably cheating and skipping ahead to read the end, which if any of you are book readers, you know you should never do that. So I want to go back to the beginning in Genesis 1, and before we enter that scene that we just read, I want to show you the people that God is writing Genesis 1 to, so that you can see the context these words are written in, and understand that this is what I call the Genesis of the liberated. Genesis 1 is the beginning of this countercultural, radical, upside-down declaration that the God we are being introduced to in these pages is like no other. Right? This is a book whose first audience still remembers the chains and whips of their slavery in Egypt. Who were told stories about what started that slavery centuries earlier. Stories that started like this. About a new king that rose up over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, the ancestor who, actually, who God used to bring the Israelites into Egypt. Not just to save the Israelites, but to actually save all of Egypt from a famine. When this king rose up and forgot Joseph... And looked out and realized that he was surrounded by these Israelites, these non-Egyptian Hebrew immigrants, who had become, like the text says, so numerous that the land was filled with them. As he realizes this, as he takes his throne, he also grabs his podium to stir up his base. Exodus 1, 9-10 records his acceptance speech like this. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. This is the national crisis we are in, Pharaoh's explaining. They're taking over just by having babies. They are a threat to our national security. We can't count on them being loyal to us, so if if war breaks out, you know what they're going to do. They're going to just join our enemies. They're going to leave the country. 
At a time when only the king was called the image of God and everyone else had dignity and value only in proximity to the king, it is easy to see that it wouldn't take much for a nation who forgot its history to be stirred up against the immigrants who made them who they are, who saved them from destruction. Pharaoh otherizes the Israelites and in so doing dehumanizes the Israelites, and paves the way for over 400 years of slavery. And so as these newly freed slaves walk in the wilderness, and as they make their way to the promised land, they remember. And God wants to shape them with more than the memory of their enslavement. In Genesis 1, he wants to shape them as image bearers. Not as other, but as created. With all the dignity and worth and value that comes with that reality created alongside every other human being, Egyptian or otherwise. This is why I call this book and this chapter the Genesis of the Liberated. It is a book written for those who are freed from slavery to ground them in who God says they are and who God says everyone is created in the image of God. And so we start here because the Bible starts here and lays the groundwork for everything God will reveal about who he is and who we are. And so today, we're going to spend most of our time here in Genesis, but we're going to make connections with the rest of the Old Testament. This is where I talked about us running really fast to do all of this, to see how God begins to shape a multi-ethnic people for himself as this beautiful community. And we'll end our time by opening the door into the New Testament, but then next week, we're going to spend all of our time there in the New Testament to see how God reshapes a multi-ethnic people into a beautiful community who lives out Revelation 7 now. And this morning, to go through the Old Testament, we're going to use four theological guideposts to keep our our biblical theology moving forward. This is more for me than for you, so that I don't preach for three or four hours. They are the creator, the created, the chaos, and the call. Creator, created, chaos, and call. And like I said, we start where all good stories start. We start in the beginning. This morning, we start this deep dive into God's multi-ethnic people with God himself. We start with the creator. Genesis 1-1 opens with these words that I've been alluding to this whole time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who is this God that we call creator? If you were to track with the storyline of the Bible, the list of attributes that describe this God grows and grows and grows and is absolutely incredible, is eye-opening, is humbling and gratitude-producing, but also worship-generating. And we don't have time to go through all of those attributes, but for our purposes this morning, I do want to focus our attention on God's fundamental identity as triune, or in other words, as a trinity. What does it mean that the creator God is a trinity, and what in the world does that have to do with us? I can see and feel that I'm starting to lose you by using theological words, but if you track with me, it'll pay off, I promise. To begin with, many books and illustrations have been used to try and describe the trinity, And I don't have time to go through all of those, and not all of them are super helpful, but in a very real and significant way, the Trinity is a mystery with depths impossible to fully fathom. It is a a worship-generating reality that God is one and God is three. The one God exists in three eternally distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how this really works is a question that to be honest, is is beyond our capabilities to fully understand. And yet, this is who the Bible reveals God to be. 
And we don't need to understand how all of it is shaped in order to be shaped by it. It is beautiful, and we want to study it, and we want to know God better, and we should step into that. But God being a trinity affects us before we understand it fully. But I'm still going to walk through why we even can talk about this, because I'll be honest, I'm theological cards on the table, you're not going to find the word trinity anywhere in the Bible. That doesn't mean that's not a truth, a reality. It is a, a, a phrase we've used to summarize who God has revealed himself to be. So let me show you what, how God has revealed himself and how we can say that he's three in one and one. Deuteronomy 6.4 says it like this. God reveals himself as one God by saying this. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So I can say there's only one God. Israel's not worshiping, uh, like the Greeks might say, a pantheon of gods. There's only one God. He is fundamentally united within himself. But then we fast forward all the way to the New Testament. In Mark 1, 9 through 11, we get this scene at Jesus' baptism. And I picked this, not because there's not other texts in between Deuteronomy and Mark, but because it's a very clear picture of what we're talking about when we talk about three persons in God. The text says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus, the Son, was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice, the Father, came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. In this one scene, we actually see all three persons of the Trinity, present, active, and distinct. They're doing different things. In other words, this is why we can say that God is three persons. He has, fundamental, he has revealed himself as fundamentally diverse within himself. And though there's much to say about all the ways in which God being a trinity, his fundamental identity as a trinity works its way out in the world and in salvation, what I want to establish here is that God is the very definition of unity in diversity, of diversity in unity. He is the one who defines what that looks like. God defines what it means to be a true community, united as one, yet distinct from each other. And it is beautiful. Right? And that beauty spills over into humanity. You see, that the creator, the united one, the diverse three, the triune God, overflows with who he is. And us, as the created, then get to reflect this overflow as those that have been created in his image. The God of Genesis 1.1 is one God eternally existing in three persons. And this God created everything, but he especially created us. It's the text we read at the beginning. And the text says that he created us in his image. Now, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preaching on the image of God explains it like this. He says, the whole concept of the imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. There are no gradations in the image of God. We are all each of us made in that image and it matters. So let me show you why it matters and how it fits into this biblical theological path that we've been walking. Genesis 1.25, we read it this morning, or we read it earlier. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. 
Right, so to begin with, God has been creating for a few days now. And then we get to this day, and he gets to the stage where he starts to create animals. And the text says that he creates them according to their kinds. And like a good poet making a point, God repeats himself to explain that they are not like me. They are created according to their kind. But the text continues in verse 26 through 27 and switches things up. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, not according to their kind, but according to his image, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Not according to the kind, but according to his image. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Dr. King was right when he preached that being created in the image of God communicated not only uniqueness, but worth and dignity. Being made in the image of God means something different than being made according to these kinds. It means that there is something special about humans, something that distinguishes humans from animals, but not something that distinguishes humans from each other. You see, notice that this Genesis of the Liberated has no reference at this point or even in these first few chapters to ethnicity or nationality. The first humans here are not assigned to any particular people group. Nowhere in the text is there a reference to Israel or to any other nation for that matter. This is not the literature of another people group seeking to establish their priority and their dominance over others by virtue of their nearness to God. This is the revelation of God to all humanity, that all humanity finds its origins in him. That all humanity is created in his image, and that being created in the image of a triune God encompasses both unity and diversity. So here's what I mean by that. Reflecting his unity, it is important to remember that we are all made in the image of God. This foundational unity, this, re- this foundational reality distinguishes us from animals, but unites us with each other. We are all image bearers. And at the same time, reflecting his diversity, we have to remember that we are each made in the image of God. From the very beginning, God introduces diversity. Did you catch that in the text? And I don't just mean creating man and woman. I just mean that he created two. He created another He created a community like he is a community. In other words, difference is built into the very identity of humanity. And the text says in Genesis 1.31 that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. All the difference, all of the sameness was very good. This new community that God created between the first two humans, a community that the text says was meant to spread all over the earth that God had created, This new community was very good. And this theological understanding is crucial for us to understand as we seek to express the multi-ethnic beauty of God's kingdom in this community. If we are by nature both united and diverse, then we as a church, as the local embodiment of God's kingdom in this particular place, in this world, must seek to cultivate a culture that reflects that fundamental identity that God is restoring in humanity as both united and diverse. We need to simultaneously elevate unity and diversity because they are both important and they are both fundamental to being humans created by God and humans that are being recreated by God into new creations because of Jesus Christ. This means, like I've said before, like I've said a couple times up here, that we refuse to baptize uniformity as unity. 
that we see and celebrate our differences, and yet we do not center our differences. The center is and always remains Jesus alone. As Dr. Irwin L. Ince Jr., a pastor in Washington, D.C., explains, only Jesus is able to bear the weight of the center. Not our blackness, not our whiteness, not our Latinoness, or our Asianness, or our Americanness, or our whatever. Jesus Christ alone. In practicality, though, this means at least two things for us. It means that those who operate in a majority culture have to work to listen in humility and demonstrate that humility by intentionally putting themselves in situations under the influence and authority of someone who's not in that majority culture. It also means that those in a minority culture have to work, and yes, I mean work, to trust those who have been in a majority culture even if your personal and collective history is marked by racial wounds. The cost of being part of this beautiful community is high. That's why Jesus paid it first. He gave everything to do what the Bible says. He created one new man out of the two, destroying the wall of hostility in Ephesians. I'm getting ahead of myself to next week. The cost is high for us to actually engage in who God has called us to be as a multi-ethnic body of Christ that reflect the kingdom of God that is coming here and now. And we all have to count it. It also means that we recognize differences for what they are. Something beautiful to contribute to the kingdom of God. Right? Every ethnicity and culture it contains more than just a style of clothing or a menu of meals. Right? They contain views and values, ways to relate and ways to suffer, ways to uh, learn and ways to have wisdom. And each is brought under the authority of Scripture, but none is disregarded with the logic of colorblindness. Right? Each difference is beautiful and it is to be tested, redeemed, and celebrated through God's word. In practical terms, this means things like knowing our own story. Some of you know, I grew up in Miami, Florida. And if you've been in Miami, Florida, uh, and, and you're Latino, you don't realize you're a minority until you leave Miami, Florida. And so when I went to the Midwest for college, it was quite the experience to be approached and told, man, I just wish I had culture like you. And I said, you do? I can see it. Can't you? We have to acknowledge that each of us has a culture that affects and even controls our assumptions and our expectations. Each of us even come to the Bible with a framework that has been handed to us by our culture, by our ethnic backgrounds. None of us come to the Bible with a, a blank slate. And that's a good thing. Because it means we need each other. To complement one another to correct each other, for you to see things that I don't see, and for both of us to submit to the authority of God's word rather than elevating some kind of cultural preferences that have devolved into principles and we've baptized as theological. Know your story. But it doesn't stop there. We also have to get to know the story of another, of others. You see, history, whether we are conscious of it or not, affects the way we perceive the world, the way we relate to other people, the way we engage society. We all have a history, an ethnic history. 
And that history is worth knowing. It is worth being known. And if we're going to obey the commands that Jesus gives us to love one another and to bear with one another's burdens, we have to actually know what those are. And so I encourage you, there are multiple podcasts, books, documentaries out there for you to learn the history of a different ethnicity and in so doing, be able to love the brother or sister that sits across from you on Sunday morning. It is an act of love to not just know your own story, but to know the story of another. And in beautiful community, to engage those stories together and submit all of those to Jesus and his word. But Eric, why all these practical applications? Why is this so hard? All of this sounds really complicated. Why can't we all just get along? Well, I'm going to let the genesis of the liberated explain why knowing that our creator is three in one and that we are created in the image of the triune God, both in unity and diversity, is not enough to create utopia. Let me let God explain the chaos that entered the world and distorted that unity and diversity. So we're going to fast forward a few chapters to Genesis 3, where we find the first humans not obeying God's commands to be fruitful and multiply, but disobeying God's commands concerning the fruit of one particular tree. If you've been tracking with the story and you read through Genesis 3, you find out that an enemy has snuck in and wedged himself between the humans and God. He has slithered his way in and mutated the diversity in which they were created, lying to them about the consequences and planting the doubt that somehow God as the other was keeping something good from them. But when they stepped outside of God's design and did what God said they should not do, what happened is that their differences exploded. They felt shame for their nakedness. They covered themselves up. And Genesis 3, 12-13 records the response that they gave when God questioned them about their sin. Verse 12 says, The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God turns to the woman and says, What is this you have done? And the woman says, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Confronted with sin and having experienced the consequences of separation and animosity with each other, God's first humans point the finger and they blame the other for evil. And in so doing, they dehumanize each other. Like Pharaoh dehumanized the Israelites when he otherized them. And so began, begins this downward spiral for humanity and creation. Here's what I mean when I say that they dehumanized each other. Now the text says that they each had punishments, serpent, woman, and man. Genesis 3, 14 through 15 records the, the serpent's punishment. It says that, that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between her offspring and his. He will crush, the offspring will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will strike the offspring's heel. There will be enmity, animosity, hostility between humanity and creation. But that's not the only punishment. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So this is what I mean by saying that they're dehumanizing each other. Turning to the woman, God lists this number of punishments, this whole list. But the final punishment that he gives is not just for the woman alone. It's for the woman and the man. It's all for all of humanity. It is the punishment of distorted division and broken unity. You see, ruling would now be twisted and turned to a different object. The text says that ruling is what God called them to do in verse 28. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. But now, they would seek to rule each other. They would be treating each other like animals. The devastation of their disobedience 
leads them to otherize each other, which leads them to dehumanize each other, or more accurate, to animalize each other. The spiral downward into darkness that defiles the unity and diversity of God embedded in humanity doesn't even stop there. In the very next chapter, we hear of brother going against brother, Cain killing Abel because he is different, offering a different sacrifice. On and on down the line, difference becomes a pretext for murder and evil. Things get so bad that God actually takes care of the chaos with the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. And yet even Noah and his family descend into the darkness of chaos and the sin. And the line continues to darken even as we approach Genesis 11. But I want to stop here and camp in this chapter because in this chapter we get the clearest picture of what happened when chaos entered the world and destroyed that unity and diversity. The story begins like this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So united with one language, the people God created, the people that God commanded to multiply and spread across all of planet Earth have rebelled against him. And they were united in their rebellion against him. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. The unity in this story is actually quite fantastic. Right? It's, it's amazing. It is so effective that it actually it calls a personal response from God himself. The text says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Side note, the irony here is that their great tower was so small that God actually had to come down to see it. It's kind of like squinting. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over all the earth. God recognizes the power of their distorted unity and he puts a stop to it. He confuses their language and he scatters them so that they might obey the command he gave them in the first place. He hinders obstructs their sin, restrains their sin by confusing their language, but he's also obstructing their unity. So you might be going, okay, God, what's going on here? I thought unity was a good thing. Well, the brokenness of the scene shows just how bad things have gotten. Right? The God-given characteristic embedded in the image of God DNA that every human has encoded in every fiber of their being was manipulated against the encoder, manipulated against the creator to unite humanity in rebellion against him. This story is not about the inadequacy of unity. It is about the inadequacy of unity apart from God. Our goal is not just about being united in diversity. That's not the theological conviction that we hold. It is about being united in diversity because it is a fundamental characteristic of our maker. And as such, if we are made in his image, we reflect that fundamental characteristic. But he is the one who gets to define what that looks like, not us. And yet from Genesis 3 on, we have been trying to rewrite that dictionary. We've been trying to introduce, we've been accidentally or on purpose introducing chaos into that unity and diversity because we are sinful. But God doesn't end the story at Genesis 11. No, the creator created humans in his image, reflecting his unity and diversity, and yet we introduced sin and chaos into the world, distorting unity and diversity, and yet God is still at work to set things right in the very next chapter. God is at work making a people for himself that would introduce all people to him, 
God is at work making a multi-ethnic people for himself, and I want to show you what I mean. Genesis 12 starts like this. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. After the devastation and separation of Genesis 11, God calls out one man to start setting things right. Despite the destruction of the unity and diversity of Genesis 11, God lays out a path for unity and diversity again in Genesis 12. Let me show you what I mean. The purpose of focusing in on Abram in this moment, later called Abraham, if you know him by that name, is not to exclude, but to, through him and his descendants, include to bless and to save the world, if you read the storyline of the Bible. Right? Through one family, God is working in the world, but it is for the benefit of all families. As one theologian calls it, election, choosing Abraham, serves mission. That's the point. The people of God, if you've read through the story, and you can understand what God is telling them to do. The people of God are always supposed to be a people with dotted lines at their borders. Their distinctions are always supposed to be theological rather than ethnic. And they were supposed to allow anyone who believed in the one true God to participate in the community of the one true God. In reality, they did have borders that ran deeper than geopolitical determinations. But those borders are based on belief, not on ethnic identity. Unbelief in God excluded you from God's people. But there was always a way in. And if you read through the laws, God is always saying, okay, but if a foreigner comes, this is how you include them. This is what it looks like for them to be part of this people. The gate is left open to all who fear God and believe. And this is the beginning of a multi-ethnic people in the world, in a world that actually at the time is fully multi-ethnic. But in this people... They're united around the one true God, not around their ethnicity. This is God's plan. He's not gathering a people into some kind of exclusive club. He is bringing people into a community with open doors. Now, this is not universalism if you're starting to get nervous about the theology, theological training that your pastor has had. What this is, is that if you worship God, no matter what you look like, your inclusion in the people of God is not predicated on the physical distinctions of your people, God's people are not identified physically, they are identified theologically. And even when you think about the physical mark that God commands his people called circumcision, and you read through the text of the Bible, that physical mark is actually a representation of a deeper theological reality, a deeper theological belonging that the prophets actually call out and say, hey, just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're in, because that's not the point. The point is belief. The point is, who is your God? So practically speaking, Genesis 12 shows us that from the very beginning, the people of God had to see embedded in their belonging to him a command and a mission to help others belong to him. Embedded in their belonging to God, they had to see a command and a mission to help others belong. That's what it means when it says you will be a blessing to all the nations. A command and a mission to be pathways to God rather than walls around God. It is not enough to introduce people to God. We actually need to help them belong. 
And, and what that means is that we actually got to be really careful not to bless our cultural preferences as theological ones. We must, must be open and humble enough as God's people to challenge our cultural preferences for the sake of our complete commitment to aligning ourselves under God's word. This is where Israel got in trouble time and time again. This is why there's so much turmoil between Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament. Because they're identifying as the people of God along ethnic lines rather than theological ones. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself, so we'll go back to the Old Testament. The creator is himself, unity and diversity. And he created humans, image bearers, who reflect that unity in diversity. And though chaos entered the world through the disobedience of these image bearers, distorting both the unity and diversity, God begins to make that right through the call of a specific people to be conduits of his care, pathways of his grace, priests of his holiness and his forgiveness. So let me jump ahead in our biblical theology and and start to push open a little bit further that door to the New Testament that I've already opened a few times. Throughout the Old Testament, God's promise and plan is repeated over and over again. This plan from Genesis 12 shows up all over the place. He is making a people for himself that will draw all peoples, all nations to him. But if, like we said, we track with the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament, they've missed it over and over and over again. Rather than welcome, they demonstrate disdain. Rather than hospitality, they they exhibit nationalism. Rather than image of God theology, they have built up prejudices and the supremacy of the Jewish nation. And over and over again, God sends prophets to correct them to call them out of that, to call them into who he said that they are from the very beginning. And yet over and over again, they didn't listen. And eventually, God's punishment came. And they were sent into exile by the very people they were supposed to reach and introduce to God. And then history says that there were centuries of silence. And the question that hangs in the air is, is God done with us? Is this it? And that question is answered on the first pages of the New Testament with a no, better yet said, with the Son of God entering into the world. Jesus himself who comes and says, this is who I am, this is who you are. Constantly throughout his ministry, he's coming to to correct the prejudices of his people and show that, yes, I came for you, but I came for you so that you would bring them to me. That's why we have stories like the Good Samaritan. That's why we have Jesus reaching out. The people who get it in the Gospels, so this one's free. I won't, it's not even in there. If you're reading through the Gospels and you're tracking with who actually gets what Jesus is saying, you'll see that more often than not, the people who get it are the people who technically shouldn't get it. People who are not Israel. The people who are, are, are vulnerable and weak and broken. Not the religious leaders. And let's be honest, not even the disciples most of the time. Because God is making a people for himself that's not just bound to one country in the Middle East. Now, the Son of God also, Jesus also, reorients this thinking by providing us a framework in Matthew 22. So this is what I've been working towards. Matthew 22, 36-39 says this. Someone asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love God, love neighbor. This is the framework that God himself is giving for his people as we operate in the world. This is what makes us consider what it really means to love the God who has a multi-ethnic heart, who has unity and diversity in his very being. And this is what makes us consider what it really means to love our neighbors. What it means to not just serve people of other ethnicities, but to welcome and become personal with people from other ethnicities. You see, true relationship, which is what a community is, requires change. Right? It requires that we let the other person affect us. If you came to me and said, you know, me and my wife have been married 10, 15, 20 years, and we're still the exact same as we were when we got married, I would say, we should probably talk about your relationship. Because true relationship changes both people in that relationship. So the question is, what does it mean to be changed in true relationship in part of this beautiful community if we have this framework of loving God and loving our neighbor? Well, Dr. Insi, who I've quoted earlier, explains that one thing it means is that when, not if, but when we are offended, being humble and secure enough in our identity in Christ to ask the question, why? To question the offense and examine whether the core of the problem is actually preferences that have been shaped by our culture. And then to ask another follow-up question, if it's not already difficult enough, of would God want me to die to this cultural preference for the sake of unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? When I bring that question up, though, it affects people differently, whether you're part of the majority culture whose cultural preferences have been set up as the default and the minority culture who has to acclimate to that. That's a really hard question that I've been wrestling with all week. I didn't even know if I could ask that to you up here because that's a hard question to answer. Is God calling me to die to my cultural preferences and to see my cultural preferences in order to die to them to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? Which is, and I haven't referenced it here, a text in Ephesians. The Bible says that we are those who maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We are not the ones who create the unity. Again, God is the one who defines that. What does it mean to be changed? It means examining our preferences and identifying them And getting used to the feeling of curiosity more than the feeling of confidence in social situations. Consider this. This is an intensely practical question. When was the last time that you had someone from a different ethnicity and a different culture into your home for a meal? Relationship requires proximity. Relationship actually changes us. How about this more provocative question? When was the last time you were in the home of someone else from a different ethnicity? And let them provide the meal. You see, there's a difference between playing host in the comfort of your own home and your cultural preferences and inviting someone in. There's a vulnerability in that. But playing guest requires a whole different attitude. Relationship requires change. How do we put ourselves in positions to actually change and be changed by each other in this beautiful community that's surrounded by, by, Jesus, that's, that's surrounded by all these different ethnicities but centered on Jesus? more curious than confident and guided by the multi-ethnic heart of God. But like Genesis 12, there's also this mission embedded within the people of God. And I know I'm going long. I, I put all these things in that I had written it. My heart is like full, so I'm sorry if you guys are sleeping. I'm going to get there to the end really soon. Genesis 12, there's this mission embedded. 
But there's also a mission embedded in the New Testament within the people of God, and it's given in the Great Commission of Matthew 28:19. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The framework of the Great Commandment, love God and love neighbor, made actual by the Great Commission to go and make disciples, reminds us that making disciples is not just about getting people to believe the right truths. Make disciples, Jesus says, by inducting them through baptism into this beautiful community that's united in diversity, by teaching them the whole of my commands, which includes the Great Commandment, and includes things like love one another and bear one another's burdens. So what does this look like when we consider multi-ethnicity? In a very real way, it means that being multi-ethnic is being more than multicolor. It means being a voice for and hands on behalf of our family in Christ. It means that whatever we believe about whatever political issue, we have, brothers, we have to realize that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who not only believe differently, but have experienced that particular issue differently and have their own story in regards to that issue the question is, will we be humble enough to listen to them? Loving enough to care for them and embrace those issues wherever we land on what the solution looks like and prayerful enough to step into those situations with and for them. It means that when you and I become family in Christ, your story becomes my story. And my story becomes your story. It is our story as family. I don't get to ignore that because it, doesn't, it just doesn't affect people that look like me. Because it affects people who believe like me. From the very beginning of the Bible, the Creator has revealed Himself as His triune God, as Father, Son, and Spirit, as unity in diversity, and that is beautiful. He has also told us that we are created in His image, in the image of that unity in diversity, and that is Beautiful. And though chaos was introduced to the world through the disobedience of those original image bearers, God still called one of those image bearers to communicate to all other image bearers, blessing them with the knowledge and experience of the only true God whose image they bear. But that call doesn't disappear in the darkness of the Old Testament. It continues into the light of the New Testament like I've been talking about and like we're going to explore next week on Sunday. But I want to leave us with this quote that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said as he spoke to a gathering of church leaders. And here's why I say this, because of who he was speaking to. Dr. King exposes the church like this, saying, Called to combat social evils, the church has often remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. Called to lead men on the highway of brotherhood and to summon them to rise above the narrow confines of race and class, it has often been an active participant in shaping and crystallizing the patterns of the race-caste system. How often has the church been an echo rather than a voice? A taillight behind the Supreme Court and other secular agencies rather than a headlight guiding men progressively and decisively to higher levels of understanding. He's talking about the Bible. The church must decide whether it will aggressively lead men along the path of brotherhood or whether it will remain more cautious than courageous and more prone to follow the expedient than the ethical way. My prayer is that we would continue to grow because it's already happening, if you haven't noticed, but that we would continue to grow into a community, a beautiful community that leads humanity, that leads our neighborhoods along the path of brotherhood, the image of God path that sees ethnicity through the lens of beauty rather than through the broken glass of division. 
My prayer is that we would be more courageous than cautious and follow our multi-ethnic God as his multi-ethnic people from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 7, recognizing that we are called to reflect his coming kingdom here and now. One of my professors talks about the church like this. He calls us outposts of new creation life. The church, wherever it is placed, is to be a beacon of light. And, and I know that image has been used in other places, but, but think with me like this. If we are placed in a community, who God is shaping us to be as his kingdom, with his kingdom values, is supposed to be not just uh, something countercultural, but something that the world can hope for. Something the world can look at and say, man, that is just, that is different. Like, they're, they're, they're really different people, and they're united. And it's not just, like, surface level. There's something deep happening there between them and relationships. And we can say, this is God's plan. This is what God is working towards. We are images of that kingdom even here and now as his local body of believers, as these outposts of new creation life. i got to stop myself before I keep going and let you guys go have lunch. Come back next week. We're going to talk about how, how Jesus, I mean, turns this call that God has in Genesis 12 into something that they couldn't have even imagined, that we have difficulty even imagining now. Before we get there, would you pray with me? Gracious and heavenly God, we plead with you this morning to open our eyes to your multi-ethnic heart. Would you open our eyes to the ways in which we participate in practices and habits and ways of thinking and systems even in society that devalue and disintegrate your image in our fellow image bearers? Continue to shape us as a community that reflects Revelation 7 here and now. Would you open up our eyes to the ways in which our cultural preferences have become theological principles and would you change us together? that we might look more like who you want us to be than who we'd like to be. May we pursue you and each other honestly and truly, and in so doing, may this community look more like heaven with each passing day. May we reflect the gospel deeply in each and every one of our relationships. We love you. We trust you, especially when this gets hard. And if you don't go before us, like Moses said, we don't want to go. We need you to lead us into this. To be honest, God, we don't even really know what we're doing. But you said this is who we are, and I pray that you would help us to live into that. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.